Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome Jonathan Abrams to the show. Jonathan is a New York Times sports reporter and a former staff writer for the LA Times and ESPN's now defunct Grantland. He is the author of a brand new book called The Come Up, An Oral History of the Rise of Hip Hop. You might also know Jonathan's book about The Wire called All the Pieces Matter. In his new book, The Come Up, Jonathan dives into the history of hip hop as told by the people who lived it. He interviews over 300 artists, DJs, producers, and music executives through all different eras of hip hop, through all different regions of the United States. It is the most comprehensive chronicle of America's most popular music genre by far. Today, we talk about the process of writing oral history, as well as some of Jonathan and Mai's favorite diss tracks. Don't forget, our November book club pick is Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms by the journalists Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. We will discuss the book on November 30th with Mariam Kaba. Quick reminder, everything we talked about on today's episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love The Stacks and you want more of it, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks to join The Stacks Pack. Over there, you're going to get bonus episodes of the show, access to our Discord community, discounts on merch, and our virtual book club. Not to mention, when you join The Stacks Pack, you get to know that your money is going to support your favorite bookish podcast, The Stacks. Duh. So if you want to be part of this wonderful community, if you want to support this show, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. And now a quick shout out to some of our newest members, Sarah Sherbrooke, Duncan Slabudzian, Kirsten DeSanto, Priya, and Brandon Weaver Bay. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. You know I love you. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Jonathan Abrams. All right, everybody. I am so excited. Today, I am joined by Jonathan Abrams, who is the author of multiple books, but his newest book is The Come Up, An Oral History of the Rise of Hip Hop. Jonathan, welcome to The Stacks. Tracy, thank you so much for having me. I think I just want to say first off, what you built and nurtured and fostered is so vibrant and needed and beautiful Aww. and necessary. So just major props and hats off to you for doing this thing because it's amazing. Wow. And I didn't even pay him to say that. What a dream. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That means so much because I'm such a big fan of your work. I've been 
following you since your Grantland days. So I was really excited when your team reached out and was like, Jonathan Abrams. And I was like, what? Jonathan Abrams has a new book? Like, send him my way immediately. So this is definitely a joyful day for me. Um, We always start here. Can you just tell people what this book is about in about 30 seconds or so? Yeah. So it's an oral history on the rise of hip hop, which is the subtitle, but it's on this this genre's amazing march from being birthed in decay and desolation in the Bronx in the early 1970s into becoming this musical genre that permeates not just American culture, but culture worldwide. And I don't think that there's ever been a journey on anything quite like this in American history where it just rose from nothing. So that's what the book is about and the voices of those who created and birthed it. I had such a good time reading this book. I really like oral history. I don't know why I do so much, but I really, really do. And what I liked about this book is like, not only what did I learn a lot of like stories and juicy tidbits, like I have to admit, I did not know that Russell Simmons' brother was Run from Run DMC. (laughs) And I feel really stupid now because I'm like, that seems like something everybody knows. I had no idea. when In the book, it was like, and then he was with his brother. And I was like, oh, like maybe he meant like his brother, like his friend. And I was like, nope. Those are brothers. They are actually related. Um, so like I loved learning little tidbits like that. But then I also loved like seeing people talk about things that I did know in their own way. Like so it's sort of a mix of like, hey, if you want to learn a bit or if you just want to like delve into some of your favorite artists or like some of your favorite songs and how they came to be like it's such a good balance. I'm curious why tell this story in this way at this time? So there have been a couple of really, really good history of hip-hop books written. And I think even before I dove into this project, like I just spent a lot of months just reading history of hip-hop books. So Jeff Chang has Can't Stop, Won't Stop, and Dan Charnas has The Big Payback, and those are almost like Bible history of hip-hop books. But this genre is so young that when you look at other musical genres like jazz or know, rock and roll, like this, this thing is only 50 years old. And there's still a lot of bricklayers and pioneers who are still among us. And I wanted to be able to have this just in their words, undiluted, uh, in their voices, so people would know about the contributions they made. Because there's a lot of people who have lent their sweat and blood and toil into this genre who probably aren't as well known as they should be. Yeah, for sure. There were definite names that I was like, wow, you sound like you were really important to every song that I've ever loved in my life. It's interesting (laughs) that I'm just learning your name today. Um, I told you this before. I... I, I just want to talk about oral history and shaping an oral history because, as I mentioned, I love oral history. You wrote one for Grantland on the malice at the palace that is still one of my favorite things I've ever read that I go back and read like every year on the anniversary. I just I love it so much. It's so good. It's like the most suspenseful thing I've ever read. And I do remember every second of that event. Like I remember being a kid and watching it, but reading it. Oh, my God. It's like such an incredible piece of oral history. And I think that's like sort of my was my one of my gateways. It was that. And then the Grantland one on the earthquake. Um in 1989, because I'm from Oakland. And so that was like a huge event, Bay Area, Bay Bridge series. So those were like my gateways into oral history. And now I really, really love the genre. So I have a lot of like process questions for you today, which is where do you start? Are you like, let me find the people? Are you like, let me break this down into what I want to talk about? Do you go in saying like, I know we have to hit X, Y, and Z? Or do you go in and just say, let me start asking questions and see what the people tell me I have to hit? Well, it's funny because Grantland was my 
origin with oral histories too. That uh, Malice <laughs> at the Palace was the first one that I ever did. And so good. just thinking, it was almost a decade ago and Bill Simmons asked me to start looking into it. And I just thought that there was no way I could do it. And then I was almost about to throw in the towel. And then I went to a basketball game and Steven Jackson just opened the door by talking about it for like an hour and a half. Cause I think he was suspended for that night's game. So he had time <laughs> to burn. That tracks. <laughs> yeah. So when I'm doing it, the first thing I do is I just compile names on top of names on top of names of people who I'm going to try to reach to because you're hamstrung with an oral history if you don't get the types of voices that you need to be able to tell the story. And I think in particular, one reason why the Malice at the Palace oral history went so went so well, or I thought the reporting went pretty good for that one, is because it's a singular event where all these people have different perspectives on the same thing that happened because these same sequence mm -hmm. of events occurred and people have different prisms to look at it from. With a book like this on oral history, there's so many different tent poles and milestones and events that you have to hit on. So it's almost trying to replicate that over and over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. I love those were my favorite when it would be like one moment and like three different people would weigh in on what they thought about it. And I was like, I love I love this controversy between you people. Like, I love that you all think differently about this. But how do you deal with that? Like, are you because there's a part where I think it's like run references something that like someone else says and or maybe it's uh, Russell Simmons and it's like Russell Russell said this, but that's not how it happened or whatever. How do you like verify fact check how important is that or are you supposed to just like say what the people say or can you let people just <laughs> say whatever they want and put it in a book like how does that work yeah so for me i almost love those moments right because ideally in an oral history you want people to feel like these subjects are almost at a round table just discussing this moment so if there's point of contention it's almost like a family dinner right <laughs> where people are going right, back right. and forth and giving their perspective and especially with events and I know what section you're you're hinting at is when I think public one of the members of public enemy said that Russell Simmons wasn't interested in them at all and like threw their demo yeah. in the in the in the trash and Russell at the window yeah at the window yeah. and Russell was like no no I love public enemy from the get-go so for me I love those points of conflicts and points of confliction and like whether or not it's true or not I think so much time has passed that I think each of them are probably hardened in their perspective so each of them will argue mm. that their their standpoint is the truth and I think my goal is to let give both of them enough air to breathe so do you show them what the other person says or like, you know, like when you see like a doc, like the last dance documentary, it's like you see Michael Jordan watching the tape back of like what other people are saying. And he's like laughing at them and like being like, that's not true or whatever. Are you letting your subjects read the transcripts of other people or because sometimes it sounds like they reference exactly the sentence that the other person said? I think occasionally if I really want them to play off of one another. You can just be like, oh, but this person said this. And I remember not for this book, but for my previous book, the oral history on the show, The Wire, where I had done almost every interview by the time I had talked to David Simon. And so with David Simon, I just literally had almost everybody's answers to questions so he could literally just just react and respond to what people were saying. I think for this one, it would have been a little bit more difficult because there's not one central figure or main character like there would be for David Simon creating that show. 
Right. And it was that on purpose that he was last or was that just like how scheduling worked out? It was how his schedule worked out. And <laughs> it was funny. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but so I used to live in New York and he agreed to be interviewed as he was traveling from New York to to Harvard to give a speech on the Amtrak train. And I used okay. I used to live in New York. I had you know, known the trains really, really well. But for whatever reason that morning, the subway was running late and I like almost missed the Amtrak train to get on there with David Simon to where the point, I probably made it by like 15 seconds. And like, I was a mess when I finally found him on that train. I was just sweating bullets. He was just like, take a breath, calm down. Oh my God. That is like, I I feel like I'm sweating because that's my nightmare. That is like literally when you talk about what a personal nightmare would be, that's it. Like running late for such a big thing. Oh, my uh, God. Tracy, this was like after months and months and months of trying to schedule and plan this interview. I can't. I literally can't. Imagine, like, I, I feel hot. Like, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm overwhelmed by this story. But you made it and your book was great and everybody loved it. I have to admit, though, I have not finished The Wire. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know everyone says it's great. I watched the first season and I really liked it. And then I started the second season, which I know this is common that the second season people don't like, or it's like a departure and you don't really understand it till you get to the end. But then I just fizzled out, you know, a new season of Grey's Anatomy started and there I was, you know, watching that instead. <laughs> I think it's, I think if you look at The Wire from the perspective of it's a novel and not necessarily a television mm. show to where season two is just a chapter and you don't know how it's going to fit in until you finish the whole show. And then it'll make a lot of I sense. See. I see. Well, I I do want to watch it. I just ha still haven't. It. It's on my list of like shows I must watch. But anyways, we're not talking about The Wire because I don't know anything about it except for season one. Okay. I have more questions about oral history. So you have your list of people how much stuff are you open to bringing in versus how much stuff are you like, we have to hit on this topic? Like, we have to talk about the blackout in 77. That's a really good question. So I try to be malleable to the structure because history of hip hop, there's milestones, like I said, that you have to hit. You have to hit those three foundational DJs. You have to hit the blackout, you have to hit Rapper's Delight and The Message and other tentpole events hitting forward. At the same time, I wanted to be truthful to the type of interviews and, and subjects that I was talking to to be able to tell their individual stories in hip hop. So it's almost like trying to split the difference. <laughs> it it right, sounds right. probably more complicated than it, than it is, but you're, you're, you're trying to report out whatever narrative you're reporting and you're trying to stay true to that. And like, if people aren't answering what you want or like you're not getting what you want, do you like push them or do you sort of just say like, I hope somebody else will talk about this more? Like, because I'm sure like, you know, if, if you want to talk about the message and then people are like, yeah, yeah, that was a good song or whatever. <laughs> like, I mean, I know that that's not what happened, but you know what I'm saying? Like, if people are sort of like, yeah, 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 like it was a bop and you're like, no, but I need to know like more specifically. And they're like, yeah, no, I like, like it was fun. Like, do you push or are you just like, okay, this is the wrong person for this conversation? Like in the moment, how are you negotiating, like getting what you need versus like derailing the interview? Yeah. I wouldn't say push. I would say more a gentle nudge. Okay. I think <laughs> <laughs> you obviously have a different temperament than me. I'm very pushy. <laughs> um, yeah. And I also think that you can 
also buffer what you're trying to report by talking to different people if you're not getting what you're necessarily trying to get from a certain subject. It's, it's all weaving this tapestry that you're trying to put together at the end. And with oral histories especially, and there's not going to be one person who's going to hit on everything you need. So right. you need to be able to have multiple people talking about a singular thing. Do you ever get to go back to people and be like, hey, can you respond? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially if you want them to play off of the conversations and have it seem like it's that table type setting where people are you know, bouncing ideas and thoughts and reflections off of one another. Right. And did you do these virtually during the pandemic or in person? Or I know you've been working on this book for like four or five years. Yeah. So the crux of the reporting happened during the pandemic. There were a lot of phone calls. I think the only places I was able to actually travel while reporting it was New York and Los Angeles. I really wish I could have done more of the reporting in person just because, you know, when you're sitting face to face with somebody, it's more of a conversation. You're going to get them to usually open up more. And I want to say, like, this was even before I started doing Zoom more often. Most of it was just, yeah, by phone. Mm, Interesting. And then you record it and someone transcribes it. Correct. Yep. Well, a lot of money okay. towards transcription fees. <laughs> I bet. I feel like a lot of talking, especially because it's like with oral history, it's so much like colloquial language and like just like you have to get every little nuance in a way that if you were just turning it into a nonfiction book, you could kind of like gloss over some things or like change it or summarize things. OK, this isn't this is a very me question, which is how do you catalog everything to remember who said what, who is worthy of weighing in on what, who's person like, because you have all these interviews, you have all these people. I think like you mentioned in the introduction that you cut out like two thirds of the book, which just had me imagining like how much more stuff you had on all of these topics and all these people. So how did you organize yourself to be able to go in and pull what you needed? So when I'm doing an oral history, and when I'm doing, even if it's just, you know, a a small article, I like having all the transcripts in front of me. So I like seeing every single thing a person said, and I have a highlighter. And anything that I think is I'm going to use, I highlight it, and I go through, and I keep trimming and trimming and trimming. What I can, it's almost like you have a wet towel, and you're trying to dry dry it out, and you're Mm-hmm. You know, twisting it, twisting it, twisting it, trying to take out that excess water. That's how I compare it. Interesting. I, it's such an interesting analogy. Okay. What did you take from previous oral histories that you've done to this project? Like, what are things that you learned that you were like, I'll never do that again, or I always should do this, and you brought to the table with the come up? So... <laughs> This was such a huge undertaking where, like, if you look at The Wire, it's an insular world. There's David right. Simon at the top, and he has his show. So basically, getting David Simon's permission, it was, you know, afterwards, it was pretty easy to go from there to get the people I needed. Hip-hop is just so big and so yeah. vast that I feel like I appreciated the undertaking when I started, but in the end, I probably didn't, right? <laughs> Where it was trying to get in touch with and rappers, they don't work nine to fives, right? <laughs> and you're talking right. that comes up a lot in the book. Who yeah. works what hours? <laughs> and asking a, a rapper to talk for free for a long time for a book that's gonna come out in four or five years, like 
I can understand some of them being like, what in the world? But, you know, I just figured that I'd be able to have the reporting chops and had the hopes that I'd be able to get the people who I wanted to. But that was the biggest thing. It was just, it's just trying to replicate it over and over and over again. So if the wire is like, you know, like one third of what I'm trying to do now, then it's just doing that process two or three times over. But I think the fundamentals of reporting a book or reporting an oral history remain the same in that you're trying to just get the best quotes you can and weave together the best narrative you can. Yeah. And then you all, I mean, you're also part of this story. Like you, there's some narration in there where you kind of like set up different, um, different moments throughout for us. Like you kind of connect the dots. Cause like there's so much time and so many people. And I actually really liked those sections. I was like, Oh, here's Jonathan, our <laughs> tour guide through hip hop. Like I thought it was very fun. Um, were there any topics or things that you wanted to talk about in the book that you didn't get to because you couldn't get to the right people? Or like, were there things that you had to leave on the cutting room floor? Cause you feel like you just couldn't do it justice. Yeah. That's another really, really good question, Tracy. You're good at this. <laughs> oh, thank you. I try hard. I'm just nosy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny that you you segued from what you had just said to this question, because I feel like a lot of those transition periods in the oral history where it is my voice are mm-hmm. almost shortcomings for when I couldn't get the right quote that I wanted to transition from place to place or air to air. Some of it is necessary, right? Like I need to, I need to write my own voice to open up a chapter to to explain what this chapter is about. But some of the times it's like, I almost want to kick myself because it's like one of those like secrets you're not supposed to know about, but I'm being honest with you, Tracy. Mm, (laughs) I see. I see. So I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to make you feel bad. I I really like those parts. (laughs) No, no. It's kind of the behind the scenes stuff that is sometimes needed in an oral history. So if you're if I'm driving this car in the book to get us where we need to go, I'm almost saying like, man, I don't have the best quote here, but let me tell you why the roots are important because right. the roots are right. a group important. that I can get to talk to me for this book. Oh, how rude. Really? <laughs> Questlove seems like Mr. Knows Everybody, talks to everybody. I know. And I really, really wanted to talk to him. I'm going to write him a strongly worded letter about why he should have been in this book. Okay, so one of the things that I noticed that you sort of shied away from in the book, which I personally, as a messy bitch, would have appreciated more of, was like, I felt like you really didn't lean into any of the serious beefs. You obviously talk about Biggie and Tupac, but was that a choice? Were you like, I don't want to get into the interpersonal stuff? Yeah, so I thought that if I did really dive into the beefs, that where would I stop? Right. Great point. Like this is I think that's why I wanted you to go there. I was like, I could read a thousand pages on people hating each other. It's my personal favorite genre. And and it would have been a thousand pages. So I I thought about that. Like there's stuff about the bridge early on and there's stuff about Mm -hmm. Biggie and Pac. I had stuff on Nas and Jay-Z talking about stuff that hit the cutting room floor. I had stuff on their beef and stuff on 50 Cent with his beef with the world. But I was just like, this is going to be a tangent. And I really want this book to be about the rise of this and the artistry behind it. And so Mm -hmm. that was some of the stuff that left the cutting room floor. 
Yeah. Um, I respect it. I feel like it's the mature thing to do. I just, <laughs> as I mentioned, love drama. Okay. Were there things that you learned when you were doing this book that surprised you? Because I'm sure you went in with like a lot of preconceived notions and like a lot of ideas of how you wanted the book to be. Was there anything that like really stuck out as you at you as like, whoa, surprise? Like for me, as I mentioned, R- Russell Simmons' brother was <laughs> big shocker for me. And and I have one, but I want to hear what you say first before I, I say mine. Yeah. I think with any book, you want to go into it with a lot of knowledge, but you also want to go in with the capacity to learn more. And it's almost a selfish pursuit in that regard because, yeah, you just want to fill in the gaps of your own knowledge and have a fun time doing it. So learning about the message and that came out in 1982. And before, before that time in hip hop, it was a mostly party rap genre. It was rapper's delight and a hip hop, a hippity hip hop. They weren't really saying all too much. But then the message comes out in 1982 and it takes hip hop to broken glass everywhere. And it's this social commentary. And I don't know if the pioneers who had started this had really envisioned this genre as a social vessel before that. And, you know, in subsequent years, you see groups like Public Enemy and all these socially conscious groups rising up after that song. Yeah, I think the biggest surprise for me or the thing that really stuck out in my head was when I think it was Paradise Gray said that rappers were trying to look like drug dealers and not the other way around. And like that, that's like where the money was. And those were the business people in the community that were that were like admired and looked up to and like were the style icons of the time. And I thought that was really interesting because I think now we really think of it as the other way around as like rappers are who people emulate. And I just, I really, I really like that. It was a nice little flip for me. One of the other things that really surprised me was like, I felt like there was a lot of respectability politics from the older generation sort of around like rappers who weren't doing drugs or like rappers who were like, being responsible in the studio or showing up during regular nine to five hours or didn't have women around. So I'm wondering like if you thought about that at all. Yeah. So that's possibly because maybe they're outliers in that situation. Somebody like Ice Q when he came to work on America's Most Wanted in New York and met the bomb squad for the first time, they all remarked how he was just a man on a mission and ready to do his work. So maybe I just quoted those people more because it was outliers who they weren't expecting that or maybe they had heard something differently but studio time is important <laughs> and especially yeah, back then it was expensive yeah, apparently yeah especially, everybody talked about that <laughs> yep people don't like uh especially the producers they don't like people who come in and waste time and waste money yeah okay we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be right back taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? 
With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I have a very personal question for you. I was born in 1986 and I am from California. And so I am like very much a Tupac gal myself. I was raised that way. My brother was into it. He's older than me. Like I just, Biggie was like never a big thing for me. But when I was reading through your book, I kept like listening to the songs that you would mention. And I realized that like for me, I didn't start like the songs that I like in hip hop are around like 1990, 1992. That's like when I really started to like hip hop. And I'm wondering, was there a shift then? Like what changed? Or is it just my personal nostalgia? And that's like when I really started to like music and that was the music that was on like when you're six years old and you're listening to KMEL and you're not supposed to be or whatever. Um, so I'm wondering if it was like an actual shift in the sound or if that's just a me thing. So you're like four <laughs> and between four and six listening to it. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of like crisscross. Like I really liked that. Like I liked Tupac. Like there's like something different in the music. But when I went back and listened, like the message doesn't speak to me. Public enemy didn't like, it doesn't, it doesn't bop for me in the same way that like the like early 90s stuff did. My brother was born in 1981. So it was probably whatever he was listening to. I wasn't like four years old being like, give me all eyes on me or whatever. But <laughs> right. No, I, I get what you're saying. So the big thing that happens in the early 1990s as far as West Coast, and I'm only a couple years earlier than you, is that The Chronic comes out and that really that's really the first time that the West Coast is really recognized countrywide for their impact on hip hop, right? Like NWA came through and New York was still kind of like 
what are these guys doing to the music that we've created? But just sonically, artistically wise, what Dr. Drake came out to with the chronic, with the synthesizers and the G-Funk and just the perfect music to ride around in Southern California. And it's also, they can also make the lyrics clean enough so that it's almost ubiquitous on radio, on KMEL for you and on Power, Power 106 and 92.3 The Beat, that it just... It's almost like in the veins of people growing up in that era. Yeah. Okay. So it's probably a mix of the sound, but also just like the nostalgia. Because I know like older people are like, you know, public enemy is the greatest thing that ever happened to hip hop. And I'm just like, it's not, it's not for me. Like it's just not quite, it's just not. But, you know, I think it's probably just an age thing too. No, Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change the era that I grew up on as far as the early nineties with. Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Tupac and DJ Quick and all those guys coming out in Southern California was like too short and mob music yes. and Aunt Banks was that big when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, I'm from Oakland, so too short, E-40, big deal. Uh, <laughs> I mean, also huge MC Hammer fan here, you know, love MC Hammer. I think what it also is for me is that when hip hop started, it was like disco, right? Or like ghetto disco, I think is what someone called it in the book. And I love disco and I've always loved disco because I grew up as a dancer. So we always did dancing, you know, and I feel like that 80s era, the music wasn't as danceable. And then I feel like in the 90s, you kind of got like the bops back a little bit like hip hop music went back to like finding sort of the like funky vibes as opposed to like, I don't know, I'm just like not dancing I, I I don't know. Maybe I'm just it's, it might just be a nostalgia thing, but I feel like there's so, like a nothing but a G thing. Like, yes, like I'm I'm grooving. I'm here with you. You know, that's interesting because hip hop is a direct descendant of disco where it is party and dance music. But I do feel like in that late 80s, early 90s period, sonically with producers like Dr. Dre and Pete Rock and De La Soul and all these other groups coming up that just sonically, it just becomes so much more diverse and majestic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good word. Um, okay. I want to ask you, I know everyone probably asked you your top five MCs or whatever. So I'm going to do a slight shift on this question. Cause like, I'm sure you're tired and you probably have a list that you've prepared and I hate prepared answers. So what are the top five cultural moments that impacted hip-hop for you? Mm. 1995 Source Awards. Okay. Because that's when the East Coast-West Coast rivalry really shifted. And you also have Andre 3000 getting on stage and saying the South got something to say. And that really became the rallying cry of the South. Tupac's death. I am a West Coast guy and that's one of the man land on the moon moments for me where I'll never forget where I was when I heard that he passed Kendrick Lamar and his Pulitzer Prize. Ooh, yes. I think that's another step with hip hop going into a new ground and new territory that people never envision. And I might, is this question for my lifetime or just in hip hop? In hip hop history, I guess that's how I was thinking about it. But if you want to just do your lifetime, that's fine too. Well, I think Rapper's Delight, when it came out in 1979, is such a touchstone moment mm-hmm. for hip hop because it's the first time that it gets on vinyl and the masses hear it. 
and they like it. But at the same time, a lot of the pioneers who had been practicing hip hop for years by that point thought it was elementary and almost resented Sugar Hill Gang because they had to go back and almost retrain themselves. Right. And then I will go with not a split, but there was a moment in the late 1980s when Public Enemy and NWA were both really popular. And it was almost like they came to a head where the corporations were going to back either this socially conscious music or this gangster rap music. And it almost seemed like the gangster rap music won at that time. So, yeah, I think those are those are fine. That's a good question. Those are really good answers. <laughs> I really like those answers. Um, I recently read Justin Tinsley's book on Biggie. So now I, as at, yeah, the best um, at my ripe old age, I'm now like listening to Biggie for real for the first time in my life. And I live in L.A. and I live close to the Peterson Automotive Museum, which is where he was killed, as you know. And I have like a whole new appreciation for him, um, though I remember exactly where I was when Tupac died. And I was six, which is like really fucking weird to be a six year old. Like, or no, I was 10. I was 10. Okay. I want to talk about something you do in the book. This is sort of structure and sort of content related question. The book is structured by time, but also by location. So, like, we, you know, we might go to 1984 and then we might jump back to, you know, 1982, but in a different city, like, or we might go to the South or we might go whatever. So, I want to know why you decided to structure it in time and place as opposed to like theme or topic or concept? I thought that it would make the most sense to do the book as chronologically as possible. But in doing so, it's impossible with hip hop. Hip hop, the history is messy, right? So if you, right. the way I try to view it was that hip hop is this tree that starts in New York and the roots grow there and it's growing in New York for a little while but then the branches are spreading everywhere and they're also getting tangled up. So if you look at something like gangster rap, like that started basically in Philadelphia with Schooly D in the early 1980s, then quickly jumps to the West Coast. So I wanted to do that chronologically by having to start there and then jumping out West to LA with Ice-T. So it kind of it kind of flows in and out through different regions and then different geographies are important. Trying to trying to structure the book was a lot of headaches. I felt like uh, I bet. Carrie Matheson at some point <laughs> with all the outlines and plots and different. Did you have like a big board like that with string and stuff? I didn't have the string. I had index cards. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 But like, did you tape them up on your wall or whatever? They, they were. I, Probably went a step too far with that, but they were taped up to my wall. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Honestly, the only reason I ever want to be an author is just so that I have an excuse to tape things to my wall. <laughs> I feel like that would be like, I would be so, I would be such a perfectionist though. I would like be like, oh, it's crooked. I have to tape it again. Like, oh, I never get anything done. Um, be, be careful with that though, because when I took the tape off, some paint came off and my wife wasn't too happy about that. So. I have toddlers, so I have like a lot of parts of my house where there's no paint on the wall. So I'm going to have to do a revamp anyway. So I should write my book before I repaint the house because other what you're telling me. Okay. Another question for you. Uh, so in, in college, I studied hip hop uh, in hip hop theater and we had to like 
I went to NYU. So I got to learn from like some really cool old head, like hip hop people. We had to like learn how to DJ and like we got break dancing uh, classes and like all this stuff. And let me just say, scratching is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> it's nearly impossible. But that's not the question. The question is, when hip hop first started, it was like four components, right? It was the DJ, it was the MC, it was the dancer, and it was the graffiti. What, why did graffiti and dance and the DJ to an extent like publicly fall off? Like, why did it become all about the MC? Obviously, the DJ is still there. They still produce. They still make the music. But it's not like we know hell of DJs in the way that we know hell of rappers. I think it just became what was most popular as time evolved, right? The MC became more of an art form. It became more lucrative for people to do it. And I would almost argue, I feel like producers are maybe not as well-known as artists, but I feel like being a producer is still lucrative. And especially with signature tags and songs these days, the producers are becoming yeah. more and more well-known. Right. But like if you're an everyday like music listener, you might not know who was the producer behind a certain album, but you know who's rapping on it. That's what I mean. Like, I definitely think they're super important. And it's like their vision is sort of what gives us the sounds that we know and love. But it's not like unless it's like Dr. Dre, it's not like everybody knows who produces what like I know who produces Kendrick Lamar, but I don't think that a lot of people do. Or like I know who he works with. That's not a good example. Maybe no, little baby. But, but like <laughs> producers these days, they're screaming their names on tracks. So people, that's true. So people that's know. True. But as yeah, far as those, as far as all the four cultural elements that really birthed this thing, some of them kind of falling off. I just feel like as time evolved, it was one of those things is it's like what's popular? What are the masses going to do? And it's also a lot easier to consume something that's, you know, lyrically and that's in your ears or back in the day you could transport it with the boombox rather than right. You know, graffiti is always gonna be something that there's an elemental or an element of danger about it because it's illegal if you're writing or painting right. or tagging somebody's walls. And being a DJ, I still think that's an art form. Maybe there's not people who can study it. And have the time to right. to do it and really throw themselves into it. Yeah, it's really a hard job. <laughs> Two turntables and a microphone, not easy, people. That, um, that sounds like a really cool major, though. <laughs> and what wasn't my major, so I was a theater major, but my senior year, there was this guy, Daniel Banks, who offered this like practicum. So it was hip hop theater and we studied hip hop. We studied theater like through the lens of hip hop. And like, it was sort of a, pedagogy class where we were learning how to like teach theater to kids using hip hop as like sort of the entryway. So like we had to learn the different elements and stuff. Um, and it was like a lot about like hip hop history. And then also at NYU, there's the Clive Davis School of Recorded Music or whatever. So that same year, I also took a hip hop history class. Um, I can't I can't remember his last name. His name was Jay. Anyways, I had this great teacher. And so we did all this like reading on hip hop. So I feel like I learned a ton about like early, early, early hip hop. But there's sort of this like, I don't know, I'm sure it's with everything like where the newer art like isn't studied as much or, like the newer forms. So like we learned a ton about graffiti and like breakdancing and whatever, like cool Herc or whatever. But like we didn't really talk about what was going on 
when I was in college, which is like 2008. Like we didn't talk about. So I I loved it. I had a great time, but I'm not a hip hop major because <laughs> that would be embarrassing. Because then I would certainly have to know that Russell Simmons and his brother are is in D- Run DMC or his brother was in Run DMC. I'm I'm shamed by this. Okay, I want to ask about the cover and the title. Talk to me about this cover. So the cover is unique. We want it to almost seem like a old school party flyer where you have these pastel colors that really jump out on the page. And we were debating and going back and forth over whether the cover should have been just like an arrow with, with some of the same graphics pointing up and a lot of black space behind the arrow or Mm. this looking like a straight up cover or looking like a straight up party flyer. And this one was one that I argued for because I liked that old school feeling and vibe. I love, I love it. And you have pictures in the book, which I love when I get to the picture inserts. It is my favorite part of reading a book with pictures. I get so excited and I'm like, oh my God, now I get to see who all these people are. I was like living for the photos. So much fun. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about. I wanted to ask you about women in hip hop. I'm sure you're aware there have been many women in hip hop, and I'm sure you're also aware that women in hip hop don't get nearly as much shine as they probably deserve. How did you negotiate that in this book? How are you thinking about that? Was that something that was on your mind as you were working through the project? That was something on my mind throughout this project where there were a lot of times when I reached out to women who had really, really wanted to talk to for this book, and I couldn't get to a lot of them. And I can understand that a lot of them have their own story to tell and they've had, they've had told them. And even knowing that and hitting that roadblock, I was still proud of some of the things I was able to capture in this book. I talked to people like Ann Carly and Monica Lynch, who were two leading female executives who probably aren't as well known as they should be. Ann Carly was integral in the role of uh, Jive Records and Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff coming up and a whole slew of other people. Monica Lynch was at Tommy Boy Records. But there has been a whole lot of misogyny and sexism in the history of hip hop. And it's you know something that needs to be addressed and needs to be answered. Yeah. How did you know where you wanted to stop the book? And then how did you know when you had were done? Like, how did you know, like, I don't need to go out and get more interviews? When I, <laughs> I knew that when I had come up on the year-long extension that I had asked for this okay. book, and I knew that I needed to get the book in, because this was, this was something that I could have gone on for for infinity. So right, right. I, there was just a, a stop sign that I just had to go and say, okay, this is the stuff we got, <laughs> and there were still uh, interview answers coming in even after that point, and I was just like, no, no, I'm done. <laughs> Uh, you had enough time to answer that I need to just go forward with it. And so I knew that I wanted to deal with a lot of the hip hop that I knew best and that I had grown up with. And if you're going to ask me about Lil Baby or Lil Uzi Vert or (laughs) those guys today, I'm not going to have the foremost knowledge on them. But for me, the book almost ends when Kendrick Lamar gets that Pulitzer Prize in 2017. There's, you know, a lot of space and gap in between that in the chapters, but I wanted to almost end with that as a note to say that one, this is hip hop hitting a new pinnacle, but just as easily public enemy could have won this award 
30 years ago for what they were doing. So it's really the shift has come how people in the greater population views hip hop. Yeah. Let me ask you, very smart person who writes great books, what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? That is an exceedingly difficult question. Are you a good speller or a bad speller? That was the answer. There were two, exceedingly and difficult. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Sometimes people are like, oh, it's so hard for me to answer. I'm just such a great speller. And I'm like, I hate you. (laughs) No, Tracy, I've heard. I listened to your podcast, so I was prepared for that one. Oh, good. Well, then you'll also be prepared for this. How do you write? How many hours a day? How often? Is there music? Specifically for this book, were you listening to the music in the book? Um, Are there snacks and beverages? Are there rituals? Are you lighting candles, incense? Are you doing a soaking in a lavender bath after every writing session? Tell me about it. I usually just try to get in where I can fit in, especially because a lot of the writing I do is based on reporting. And with reporting, you have to do interviews at any time, anywhere. So, and I also have two young kids. So a lot of the times when I was trying to weave this together, it's either early in the morning or late at night when the kids are sleeping or just put down. And I have a basement. I have a little little nook where I go to where I can have a lot of space and time and quiet as much as I can get done in a session. I don't hold myself to any type of goals or objections during one session. It's always writing a book is just, for me at least, it's about taking small steps forward every day. And as long as you're taking those small steps and progress is made, it doesn't have to be measured. It's just knowing that you're going towards the goal. Snacks, beverages, music? Music I listen to. I listen to a lot of hip hop when I'm writing, whether it's a book or an article. Uh, I also have a treadmill that I have in my gym to where if I get stuck, I just hop on that bad boy and try to get the Whoa. mind flowing. <laughs> Love that. Uh, no, no snacks or beverages, at least in the basement. I try to not eat down there. Wow. What a scary place that basement sounds like. No <laughs> snacks, no beverages. You have to walk on your treadmill. It sounds horrible. <laughs> Um, okay. I told you I wasn't going to do this, but I sort of am because we didn't get, because in the book you are respectable and you don't talk about too many, uh, beefs. I need to know what the greatest diss track of all time is. That's an easy answer for me would be hit him up with Tupac Shakur. It's vicious. How is there a debate? (laughs) This is how I feel. I was okay so this will air after this happens but my children this year for halloween i have identical twins and they are almost three and they are being tupac and biggie this year for halloween (laughs) i'm a crazy mom um but to get them hyped we've been listening to a lot of tupac and biggie like a lot that's all we listen to right now and the other day i'm just driving in the car like not paying attention and hit him up comes on and it's on and like i know the song so i'm not really paying attention and then it gets to the like outro which i think on some versions is cut out where tupac is just like saying fuck you to all these people <laughs> and calling people all these like horrible names and i'm listening and i'm like i haven't listened to this part obviously in years and i'm like we have a debate about the greatest diss track when this song exists and has existed for 20 years like what? That song is insane. Once he starts talking about Sickle Cell and with Mob <laughs> Deep, it's just too personal. <laughs> it, like, I'm not saying that anyone 
ever should be murdered. But I also understand how deeply offensive what he is saying to those people. Like, he went all the way the fuck off on that track. Like, that is wild. And people are like, no, Drake and Meek Mill. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Drake like made fun of like a baseball team or something. <laughs> Anyways, I just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page about that. Uh, no, that's hilarious. Yeah, two that's uh, two twins at three or under three. They're almost three. Oh yeah. my gosh! I hope you and your husband are getting sleep and have sanity. I gotta say, my kids sleep. Thank God. I don't have any sanity. No, of course not. But. I have kids who listen to Tupac. So like on our way to school now, they'll be like, we want to listen to Biggie. And I always laugh because I'm like pulling into the preschool and I'm like blasting Biggie and we're like dancing in the car. Like, you know, and I, all these parents are like listening to kids pop. And I'm like, <laughs> over my dead body, people. That's, not going to happen here. That's great. Because like with my wife, like I have to like turn the music down or if I have it too loud around the kids, like I have, my sons are eight and five and she'll be like, Sorry. Jonathan or so I have to wait till we're in the car alone or <laughs> like stuff like that because <laughs> I want I want them to grow up on it you know me too I always say like I just don't want my kids to ever not know what mm-hmm. it was like I don't want them to ever be like oh the first time I heard hit him up <laughs> well maybe not that one I feel like I should pull back on that one but like because that's how my that's how I was raised like my dad always had on music and like I don't ever remember hearing Whitney Houston for the first time or Michael Jackson for the first time or whoever or the stylistics or or Al Green like all of that was just part of my musical life and I feel like that's why I want my kids to be like I just want them to hear a song and be like oh that's Mace yeah <laughs> Like if, the, the greatest MC of all time, who's really not in the book very much, Mace. <laughs> One of my personal favorites. You know Again, what? I think that might be nostalgia. You know what? I used to love Mace too. <laughs> I used I to love, love him because too. I feel like Mace because he rapped slow. I could rap along, and so I was like, "Wow, I'm a professional rapper." Whereas like Busta Rhymes, it was a little too fast for me to keep up at a young age. You know, I mean, even now still. So I feel like Mace was very approachable, very slow, and he had that song with Total that was so good. Oh like, yeah, that, tell me, tell what, me tell what, what you, you want. want. From me. Yeah, <laughs> Ugh, what a great song. I mean, those are middle school dances for me. So that's like prime nostalgia music. I tried to not let my taste get in the way of this reporting of this book too much because, like. <laughs> Back in the day, I used to love Silk the Shocker. Or oh I used my to, God, yes. Or the St. Lunatics. I used to love the St. Lunatics. But I feel like those, I mean, you talked about Nelly. That's important regional stuff. Like yeah. Nelly was crucial for the Midwest. Yeah. I don't know if his seven friends were. <laughs> well, I mean, Air Force One. That was such a great song. It had, its, that was, had yeah. its moment. Yeah, <laughs> this is exactly why I could never do a book like this, because I'd also just be like, I would be like, no, I don't want to talk to Ice Cube. I just want to talk to Mace, if that's OK. Like, <laughs> it's just an oral history of me and Mace hanging out, talking about Total, like whatever. Um, OK, we're almost out of time. So I got to ask you these last few questions so I could talk nostalgia hip hop forever. I know your book just came out. Don't yell at me. What comes next for you? Do you have another oral history you want to write? Is there something you're percolating on that you could share with us? And you can also say no. I can honestly say no. And it's a little relieving because it's like the first time in probably about seven years or so that I don't have a book that's due or that I'm working on or that's on the way. So 
going to take a quick exhale before I get going on another one. I mean, you do reporting, like you write for the New York Times, you wrote for Grantland, you, you write a lot. How does the book thing compare to the article feature writing thing? It's a different rhythm, you know, for a book that it's a long-term marathon project where news writing or writing articles is more of a sprint, especially if you're on deadline. There's a different type of adrenaline surge that that you don't get out of a book where writing a book is more just marinating. Mm-hmm. For people who love The Come Up, what are some other books you might recommend to them that are in conversation with your work? I know in the back of the book, folks, there is like a little bibliography too. So if you want like a long list of recommendations, that exists. Yeah. Dan Charnas's The Big Payback, Jeff Chain, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, uh, Ben Westoff, Original Gangsters, Garrett Kennedy has an NWA book, The Rap Yearbook with Shay Serrano. Those are uh, some, some of the ones that come to mind. Love Shay. Shay was on the show when he did movies and other things. Shay, my Grantland buddy. Yeah, iconic. I always say Bill Simmons is the greatest hirer of all time. I feel like everyone he's ever hired is like my favorite person to do whatever they do. Um, though Bill Simmons is not my favorite person, but I think he's like the greatest hirer. Like you, Shay Serrano. I just, it's like the list goes on and on. Anyways, what do you hope folks will keep in mind as they read this book? <laughs> that hip hop is such a grand, vast genre that if your favorite group or artist isn't mentioned, it's probably not an oversight. I probably try to get them in there. Either they didn't talk to me or that it got squeezed out in the final edit, but it is not any type of final judgment on your favorite artist or group. So you don't hate Mace. Fine. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, if you could have one person, this is the last one. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? Let's go with Obama. I feel like hip hop when he was going to school was really fundamental and probably take him back to nostalgia. And then we could get you on Obama's reading list at the end of the year. Just trying to from, sell books too while we're at it. From your lips to Obama's ears. Uh, Obama, if you are listening, please, you're invited on the show if you're around anytime. Um, Jonathan, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. The book is called The Come Up. It is out now. You can get it wherever you get your books. Is there an audiobook? There is, yes. Not me, though. Do you, not you. Is it multiple people? Yeah, it's multiple people, professional readers. I did an audiobook before and I did not like it. And I said, all right, next time I'm going to have a professional do it. <laughs> No, thanks. I'm going to pass this off. Well, folks, get the physical book or an ebook or get the audiobook. Request it from your library. It's very, very good. If you like hip hop, if you like history, if you don't like either of those things, but you feel like you are missing some education on the culture, this book is a really, really good one. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. Tracy, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Jonathan for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Gwena Stansfield for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for November is Prison by Any Other Name by Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. We will be discussing the book on November 30th with Mariam Kaba. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. 
Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you listen through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tegirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 